Guys, I hope you brought your Bibles this morning. I want to read you a story out of it. Um, it's a long story, and I tried to find a way to shorten it, but I didn't feel like I could. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. I'm going to read a very familiar story to you, all 30 verses of it. So you follow in your copies of that which we believe to be. A book that's inerrant, infallible, contains no contradictions nor legend. This is the very mind of God as black words on a white page. Here we go. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 3 at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And he... And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship... You shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. 
Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the fiery furnace, burning fiery furnace and declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of our God, oh, that is something that endures forever. Guys, uh, this is a story that is very troubling, very, very upsetting for Christians in the 21st century at, at a couple of different levels. For instance, did something like this really happen? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of hard to fathom this fiery furnace. Uh, into which three men are thrown without them being consumed. I mean, we're really, what you're really talking about here is a miracle. Yes, we are. That's what we're talking about, which is something that God can do when and where He sees fit to do them. Um, but He normally does not seem to, um, sustain life through an endless series of miracles. They are the exception. He normally works through the laws of nature that he has put in place, cause and effect. But on occasion, he chooses to work independently of laws that he himself has authored. That is what a miracle is. It is not a a breaking of the laws of nature. It is simply God choosing for a particular reason, for a particular time, at a particular place, at a particular purpose to work apart from laws that he himself has authored. That's what this is. And I would say to you, yes, indeed, this did happen, just as we read. But there's another level, gang, that it's even more, this story is even more upsetting than that, I think. Assuming that it happened, if asked... Would I do something like this? <laughs> Why? I mean, I have, I have buckled in circumstances far less trying than these. I mean, I have tucked my spiritual tail and run 
when the circumstances weren't as dire as these. Gang, part of the discomfort of this story is that it it forces us to ask questions of ourselves that I, for one, would rather not never would rather not ask. Because I'm not sure and I'm not real comfortable about it, what the answer would be. But we're going to try to look at that. And the first thing I want to do is, is just kind of, the story is a familiar one. I know it is. But let me, let me kind of give you a quick summary of the story itself. Nebuchadnezzar had conquered all of his then known world as far south as Egypt. And while there, he most assuredly had seen the pyramids and the sphinxes and the, 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 the enormous statue of Ramses the Great. And so um, when he gets back, he thinks, you know, before I die, I need, I need to get me one of those. Because I need to leave my mark on history too. And so he orders that a statue be built in his likeness made of gold that is 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. Um, and so he sets it up in a plain, in the plain of Dura, which is a flat place so that people can see it from miles around. Now, so far, so good. I mean, it really wouldn't be that big a deal if it was just being built as some kind of tourist attraction. But that wasn't his intent. His intent was that the thing would be worshipped. He says that very clearly with the punishment of non-worship being thrown in the, the fiery furnace. And so that's a problem, folks. That's a problem for God-fearing people, a big problem. So sure enough, he um, he uh, uh, schedules this, this dedicatory service, and everyone is told that when they first hear the sound of the orchestra, they are to bow beneath this, this statue. So the orchestra starts playing, and everybody bows. Except three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And um, their envious rivals can't wait to get back to Nebuchadnezzar so that they can tell him everything that they did or that what happened. And when he hears it, we're told in verse 13, he's furious. He calls for them to be brought into his presence. They come and, and he investigates. Did you really do this? I mean, are, did you really do something like this? Is it true? And they say yes. And he gives them one more chance. How about this? All right, if you'll, if you'll bow. And, and they, of course, refuse. And they are tossed into the fiery furnace. So we're back to my question. If asked, would you respond like they did if your circumstances were as dire as theirs? That's the troubling part. For at least me in, in reading this story, would I, could I respond like this? Guys, before you uh, try to answer the question, what I want to do first is I want to try to refocus the, uh, the discussion because I, I hope it will help uh, as we try to face the music or face the question. I want to refocus the whole discussion. And as I said, I hope, I hope that'll help us. But, um, what you have in this story is, is not some ordinary piece of disobedience on the part of subjects to a king. 
This is not so much disobedience before the king. It is a clash of two belief systems. That's made very clear in this text. You see it in verse uh, verse 12. They pay no attention to you and they do not serve your gods. You see it in verse 14 that you do not serve my gods. And you see it in verse 15 where he says, who is the God that's going to deliver you? What you have here is not so much just uh, disobedience of the rank and file. What you have here is a display, a story about the clash, the mutual exclusivity of two belief systems. Mutual exclusivity means you can't reconcile the two of them. You don't see the three guys going to Nebuchadnezzar and saying, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we believe in Jesus, but we sure want to please you too. And so is there some way we can work this all out? Now, gang, we may try something like that, but you got to understand that it's just another, just another form of unbelief. But that's not what you see them doing. And what I'm saying to you guys is that sooner or later, in your experience, some Nebuchadnezzar, some person who is in authority over you, is going to confront you and they're going to say something like you hear said here. Are you really that big of a fool? I mean, did you really? How dare you? I'm suggesting, guys, that that the, the clash of the belief systems is just as real now as it was in 6 B.C. or whatever this takes place. It's the same clash of belief systems. But what I want to also add is that rarely is it, in our experience in the 24th, rarely is it an experience of life and death. Now, that's not to say that it never happens that way, that it is the stakes are life and death. It happened uh, in 325 A.D. Do you know the name um, uh, Athanasius? You ever heard that? He didn't have a last name. But when you when you Google him, if you'll put in Athanasius Contramundum, it's almost like he's got a last name. That's not his last name. It's a Latin phrase. And Contramundum simply means against the world. Athanasius Contramundum. Athanasius against the world. He got that name because he attended the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Have you ever said the Nicene Creed? Well, it came from that Council of Nicaea in 325. Well, Athanasius was there and the big debate was over the deity of Christ. And his opponent was a man by the name of Arius. And, uh, or Arianism, which has a 21st century version called the Jehovah's Witnesses. They are, they are 21st century Arians or Arianism. But the stakes in this, in this debate were exile. You lose this, you, you're gone, buddy. So Athanasius fought everybody. Over the issue of the deity of Christ, you have a doctrine today known as the Trinity, where all three persons are considered divine. Jesus is divine as the Father, equal in nature and glory and power. Because of a debate that went on in 325 A.D., the stakes of which were life and death. You lose this one, you're a goner. It's interesting. In the debate, it it centered upon two words. And the only difference between these two words was one letter. 
one letter out of the Greek alphabet. It was the letter Iota, or in our alphabet, it would be the I. And, and when you write it in the, in you, the words were homoousius and homoiousius. And when you write it in Greek, you take the I, you put it under the Omicron. It's because it's called an Iota subscript. It looks like a little comma under an O. And that's what he was fighting over. Because one word meant Jesus is like God. The other word meant he is the same as God. Have you ever heard the saying, he wouldn't budge one iota? You know where that came from? (laughs) That came from the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Because Athanasius stood against the world, not willing to budge one iota. And the stakes were life and death. And, and guys, what I'm, I'm saying, it's hard for Christians in the 21st century to wrap their minds around something so, so big as that. I, I'm, I'm not saying that it doesn't happen occasionally today, but normally, whereas the clash between the belief systems is still present today, normally, The issue isn't whether you live or die. So when I said a moment ago that I wanted to refocus the discussion, here's what I meant. I don't want us to talk about furnaces. Because we get wrapped up in, well, furnaces, will I do this, will I do that? Forget the furnaces for a minute. Let's just talk about obedience. How about that? That is something we can relate to. Forget the fiery furnace Just talk about, just think about compromise. Am I willing to compromise? Yes, the 21st century has its own version of a fiery furnace. But it normally comes to you looking like something like this. It's more like this. Either you compromise or you're going to suffer. Either you sleep around or you're going to lose boyfriends. Either you cheat in this business transaction or you're never going to get the sale. You know, guys, you, um, I had a mother come to me. It was like three weeks ago, four weeks ago, really recent. And she was telling me about her son, her 20-year-old son. I think he was 20. He was in low 20s. And he was trying to become a plumber. He wanted to be a journeyman plumber. And that, that is a noble trade, a plumber. I'd love to be a plumber. I think my wife would like for me to be a plumber on occasion as well. There's, plumbers, plumbers know stuff. They, they know more stuff more than a, than a commode. They know stuff. And I, you know, I value the, 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 what the plumber knows. But this kid had given up his pursuit of being a plumber. And he told his mother that he wasn't going to be a plumber because that the, that the whole world of plumbing was so corrupt. That he wasn't gonna, he, he couldn't make it in there. Now who'd have thunk it? Who'd have thought the world of plumbing was corrupt? That unless you are willing to compromise, you're never gonna make it as a plumber. Gang, I'm not saying that there's not the clash in belief systems. I'm saying that there is. I'm just saying it comes to us 
a little bit differently. Whereas I can't wrap my mind around a fiery furnace. I can't wrap my mind around my 20-year-old son who cannot be a plumber because he, because it's corrupt. You know, the, the, the best illustration that, that I could think of is, um, I am not a, an expert over William Shakespeare. I would I would like to be. I've tried to be. I've tried to read a lot of Shakespeare because, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you could use as sermon illustrations. But um, I just haven't quite gotten it yet. But but Shakespeare is really more of a philosopher than he is a playwright. And you see him uh, promoting values in his plays. Well, one of his lesser known plays is a play entitled Measure for Measure. And the play has a large cast, but there's only, there's three main characters in the, in the play. The, the, uh, the lead character is a woman, Isabella. <clears throat> she is the young, beautiful, virtuous, um, woman who has pledged herself to be, to go to the convent. <clears throat> and then there's her brother, Claudio. Claudio had been sentenced to die by the mayor of Vienna because he had impregnated his fiancee. And then there was the villain. Villain is a guy by the name of Angelo, and Angelo is the mayor of Vienna. And um, he has sentenced Claudio to death because he's impregnated his fiancée, and he's trying to court the conservative crowd there in Vienna, when in fact the man is a scoundrel. He's doing all kinds of wicked, terrible, ugly, horrible things in his government. But he's trying to court the, you know, the favor of the conservative crowd, so he sentences Claudio to die. And so Isabella comes to visit Angelo, the mayor, to ask for mercy for her brother. Angelo, seeing the beauty of this young woman, makes her a deal. And here's the deal. I will commute the sentence of your brother if you'll become my lover. And so the, 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 the apex of the play is where Isabella is out on center stage, front stage, uh, with the, with the spotlights on her while scenes of debauchery and degradation unfold in the background taking place in Vienna. And there is Isabella in this, Isabella in this, um, soliloquy and she's wrestling with herself. Do I save my brother at the cost of my own virtue? And Shakespeare's point is simply this, guys. In a day of decadence, will anyone stand? Well, will they? In a day of decadence, ladies and gentlemen, is anybody going to stand? No, no, no. I, I, I'm here to tell you, guys. The clash of belief systems is alive and well. But it comes to you in this form, I think. Which is more able for us, we're more able to understand or to get this. Will you stand? Will you choose to be faithful to the belief system that you say is yours? Yes, guys. That's what I meant when I'm trying to refocus the discussion. Forget the fiery furnaces. Those exist, but we don't face many of those. But we face all the time. Will I compromise? Will I cheat? Will I stand? And this is a story about three guys who did. Now I want you to take a look at what their faith looked like. That is the faith that, that stood. Notice what it looks like. 
Nebuchadnezzar breathes all of his fiery, you know, uh, I'm going to send you to the fiery furnace in verse 15. And then in verse 16, they answer basically immediately. They had decided long ago what their answer to a question like this is. In fact, you remember back in chapter 1 when we started our study of Daniel, verse 8, when uh, they, they chose not to defile themselves with the king's food? Remember that? They'd made a decision, maybe even there, but maybe long before that. But they didn't need to think about this. They don't need to go off and pray about it, Nebuchadnezzar. We got our answer for you. You want our answer? Here's our answer. We don't need to, we're not going to bow to your gods. And in, in, not only are we not going to bow your gods, but if our God whom we serve, and here's where you get a, a glimpse into a faith that's, our God who we serve is able to deliver us. That's the first part of it, guys. A confidence in the ability of God to do far bigger than a fiery furnace. You got that? You know, in the New Testament, Jesus is healing two blind guys in uh, Matthew 9. And before he heals them, he turns to the blind guys and he says, do you believe I'm able to do this? And they say, yes, sir, we do. We, we, we believe you are. And so he heals them. Do you believe that? Is that a part of your belief system that God is able? Because if you don't have that much, ladies and gentlemen, you won't be standing. They go on. Not only is he able, but he will deliver us out of your hand. One way or the other, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to deliver us. Should he choose to, he'll deliver us. But then there's this next part that I want you to notice, guys. But if not, that is, even if he doesn't deliver us, Nebuchadnezzar, Gang, in a lot of ways, that's the centerpiece of the text. There is an if not clause to their belief system. They recognize that God's will for them may be different than the one that they would like for him to have for them. They are fully aware that what he may do is not exactly what they would prefer him doing. Their faith has been placed in a person that they know to be true, to be faithful, to be sovereign. That they, they understand his goodness. And so, they are not pledging loyalty to that God based on what he does for them. Because very frankly, he may not do what we want him to do. There is something very moving about that, ladies and gentlemen. A faith that says, oh, I'm committed to you, God. And I'm committed to you even if you don't do what I think you ought to do. I'm not saying to you, God, I will serve you if you deliver me. I'm saying, God, I am yours whether you deliver me or not. You know, folks, it's really easy to withstand temptation if you absolutely are sure that everything's just going to come up hunky-dory. That's not faith, ladies and gentlemen. Here's a group of guys who say, 
if he doesn't do it exactly like I would like for him to do it, be that as it may, I'm not worshiping your gods. Folks, that is the kind of faith that will stand in a day of decadence. You know, the one that we live in. And if that's what you got, don't be surprised if the response you get is the one that you find here. Like in verse 19, when Nebuchadnezzar, over in um, verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar is furious. In 19, oh, he's filled with fury. He's out of his mind now. Here's the point. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't simply oppose this faith. He despises it. The, the belief system that clashes with ours doesn't simply disagree with our positions. It despises our positions. And you know why? Because basically the position of faith is saying to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, you ain't the king, big boy. You don't rule here. There's another king before whom you've got to stand. And being told that makes Nebuchadnezzar full of rage. Yeah, it does. This culture wants to think that they're in charge, that they're God. I saw a YouTube clip where a woman that you all know said this week that my salvation grows out of me. Because I'm God. She didn't say that part. I'm saying, my salvation grows, comes from me. And when the other belief system known as Christianity looks at that culture and says, no, it doesn't. Did you notice here that nobody ever says, oh, my goodness, you fellas are really impressive. Oh, my. And, uh, you know, we don't agree with you, but, my, anybody who is as sincere as you are, we really want to work some out with you. No, that doesn't happen. Because the belief system they represent is a belief system that says, um, you know, everything that's seen is transient and everything that's unseen is eternal. There's something far bigger and in eternal, and you ain't it. That's not a position they oppose. It's a position they despise. Gang, may I be the first to inform you, your position as an evangelical Christian is not just opposed it's despised. There's one other thing I want you to see, and then we'll uh, wrap this up. Um, it really takes place in, in verse 25, where Nebuchadnezzar's looking in from some place, from some vantage point, and he sees, oh my goodness, there's not three in there. Didn't we just put three in there? I thought we did. Did the boy forget how to count? No, no, there's a fourth person in there. And he appears to be as one of the sons of the gods. You know who that is, don't you? That's called a Christophany or a theophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Jesus showed up, folks. And because he did, the Nebuchadnezzar in all his court got a glimpse of this Christ of ours 
and nobody, nobody is converted. Well, they're impressed that nobody's converted, at least Nebuchadnezzar isn't. It's interesting that the world, through a stance like this on the part of three of God's people, gets a glimpse of the Jesus that we serve. But their response is, oh, that's impressive. Um, But it doesn't convert anybody. Um, Just quickly, notice in verse 25, the, the one thing that the three guys lost... It says, he answered, uh, but I see four men unbound. The only thing that they lost was what they wanted to lose. Beyond that, they lost nothing. Now, guys, um, in the hopes that our responses would be better, in the hope that there might be a better outcome to the clashes in which we find ourselves, let me leave you with four things. These are things that you might want to remember. When, um, when the heat gets turned up. Four quick things. First of all, obey quickly. Delayed obedience often becomes disobedience, folks. But, but a man of obedience will never be left alone. You don't need to pray over issues that you know God has already spoken about. No, don't leave your husband because you're unhappy. No, don't cheat on your tax return because you don't know how you're going to pay the house note. The first thing that people of faith do is that they obey. And they do it quickly. The second thing I want you to remember is this. Gang, the thing that saved these guys wasn't their their very admirable faith. What saved them was that Jesus showed up. Their deliverance came because Jesus Christ appeared. There is salvation in no other way, folks. Not even through strong faith. The deliverer is Christ, not your faith. Thirdly, as has already been promised us, folks, in Isaiah 43 and elsewhere, God's people are not saved from fiery furnaces. They're saved in them. And they're preserved through them, just as we've been promised. And my friends, any gospel that tells you that if you have enough faith you're going to avoid all of these occasions. That message has lied to you. I dare say, I don't know of anybody in this room, anybody, who has a lasting commitment and loyalty to Christ like displayed here. And they got thrown to a fiery furnace. Gang, the promise of God is not that he's going to save you from them. But he's going to save you in them and preserve you through them. Then finally, here's basically the choice that we have, guys. 
we can, uh, we can be in the furnace with Christ or we can be out of the furnace with Nebuchadnezzar. The, the place of unprecedented heat is the place of unprecedented fellowship with Christ. Guys, the worst thing that they could possibly do ended up in a resurrection. When they threw those guys in there, it was death. At least it was supposed to be. But the worst thing that they could do ended up with a resurrection. The greatest weapon that the world has is the threat to kill me. And the greatest threat I have is to let them. Oh, but Dr. Young, you don't, you don't expect men to love God enough to die for them or to die for Him. I'll let you deal with that, folks. You go home and try to answer that question. But I can tell you this. There was one who loved me enough to die for me. I may fail him, but he didn't fail me. And the more I know of that love that he has for me, the more my choices, the more my behavior begins to resemble these guys. Father, I do pray that you would remind your people that there is um, there is a whole belief system that exists as surely today as it existed in Daniel 3, and a belief system that is oh so opposed to, um, to a Savior that claims to be the only way that any man will ever go to heaven. And I pray, O oh God, that you will... Um, undergird your people and remind them that it is a decadent day. And then, Father, by convincing us more and more of how much we're loved and what awaits us, that you will find more people who are willing to stand in that very decadent day. Lord, if you brought people here who have not yet met the Savior of ours, I pray that you will Cause them to see something beautiful about something that's been said or prayed or sung and that we might be able to show them as beggars where we found bread. Might we as people who are as wicked as any be able to show others where we found forgiveness. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.